be reading the Gospel of Matthew 16. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he sternly ordered the disciples not tell anyone that he was the Messiah. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids are invited to Kids Church with Emily today. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. From the second Peter reading that Brian read for us this morning. Once we were not a people, but now we are the people of God. Once we here were people who had not received mercy, but are now those who have received mercy. This Sunday um, is sort of a, a bridge Sunday. We, we have this Sunday, which is, we talked about fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil for the last four or five weeks. This Sunday um, still falls in the season in which we call Easter season. It's, it's worth remembering that we still are Easter people, and hallelujah is our song, because Easter season actually goes on for the full season um, all the way to Pentecost, which is next Sunday. Uh, there's a famous uh, litany from N.T. Wright where he's like, if you fasted hard during Lent, you need to celebrate equally as hard during the time of celebration, which is Easter season. Um, and he points out that, that that season of rejoicing is longer than that season of sorrow, of walking to the cross. And so for Christians, as much as it may not seem sometimes, we are a people of that joy. Even in Lent, as we've talked about, the Sundays don't count because a Sunday is always a mini-feast day as we meet the Lord in that day. And then this Sunday we had um, Ascension, or not this Sunday, this week we had Ascension Day, which is this teaching that Christ ascends into the heavens. Now, when I, most of my um, life, I've, I've always thought that was a, uh, he just goes back to God. Um, 
he goes back to the mothership, as I say, anybody who works for a big corporation, where is your mothership? Um, but, but what actually the scripture teaches us in Ephesians and other places is that he goes up so that he might fill all things. It may be present in creation in other ways. One of my favorite ways in which, it is in which John's gospel, which we didn't read from today, but John's gospel has this idea within it that I think we resist with much of our being, that we are better, that Jesus thinks that we'll be better off with him gone because he'll be, near, be able to be nearer to each of us as he ascends. Whereas we think it'd be much easier if it were here if he were with us, which, go back and read the Gospels again, and asked how that went the first time. Um, they, 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 being there didn't solve all the problems. But that Christ is now present here in the church because he ascended. Ephesians begins with an awesome teaching. Uh, in there, it has that he ascended so that he might fill all things. But earlier it says, he, as he ascends, is that he, that his body, um, he ascends so that his body may rule everything, and that body is the church. And so it's today I kind of want to talk about the church a little. This, this connects to the, the study that we've been doing. Live No Lies is the book um, that sort of inspired the last sermon series with loose connections. But the last chapter in the book is titled A Remnant, which is about what does it mean to be a part of a church in this way. That, that the problem perhaps with the last, if you're familiar with modern church history at all, the last sort of spiritual disciplines movement that, that really swept through was that it, it broke down into sort of individualism. Go to this church, participate in these ways, and then add these things onto your life that's not a part of your common life together. And there was good in that, but I think what we as pastors and the church have found is that having people off doing each of their individual disciplines creates more of a fractured life in a world where we already live quite fractured lives. Um, but the, the last chapter in there was also on the remnant. Um, and so today, I want to talk about the church now. Uh, Shelby was there on Wednesday. I spoke at the chapel service at uh, Ambleside of the Rocky Mountains. Is that right? Um, and I told them, I said, hey, I'm glad to be here. This is a K-8 school. Glad to be here today. Um, I'm going to talk to you about fighting the world, the flesh, and devil in 15 minutes. Did it in two and a half hours with my church, but you guys are smarter than that. And I'm going to do it in 15 That's <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sometimes you've got to make them like you a little bit. Um, uh, but I felt good after that. I felt that, that that was a short amount of time. You know, having done all the work of the sermon series, it was easier to summarize down into 15 minutes. But these next three Sundays, my hope is to, to tighten it up a little and to say what I actually want to say in, in shorter, shorter period of time. Um, because Ecclesiastes is coming this summer and it will all go away anyways because I'll get lost in that. Um, so my hope is to, to be more direct today. So I'll begin with an uh, illustration because that helps in directness. That's a joke. It does not. But has anybody seen those commercials where um, the people buying a house and it's to keep you from being like your parents? And my favorite one is uh, about you don't need a sign that says live, love, laugh. People already know that. I like that guy, his tone. Uh, Kelly and I were in Michigan and Kelly found one of those signs. Liz is a long time ago. We had just maybe bought our first house, so we were on the road to becoming like our parents. Um, but it, this sign, and I, I was wise enough to not be on the sign train, but this sign, I think, nailed what, uh, this is not in our house, but it's the sign we have in our house. Uh, it begins with the lines, go to church, and I was like, okay, I'll go with it. Um, so it doesn't say live, love, laugh. 
Um, and it's got, uh, I, I, I rated them all, and I think one of them I gave a C minus, but the rest were like B, A territory. Uh, live for today, enjoy the moment. That's the C minus on there. Um, that's where you just get into nonsense. Anyways, um, uh, the point he makes to his, the parents in that is nobody needs a sign that they need to live, love, laugh. But today, I think we do need signs that say, go to church. Um, and so often, it's Kelly and I find people who are suffering and need help and this, that, and the other, that we've often seen a parallel track in one of the churches we've been a part of where a person like that has received the care that this other person needs. And so it's this way in which we can participate in this life that binds us together in some ways. Now, we recently read the, the book Unapologetic uh, by Francis uh, Spufford, and that was one of our schools of defiance, but it begins with a long rumination on his daughter will always understand that she's weird. Now, England is a little bit ahead of us into what I call the post-Christian territory, but he goes on that she'll know she's weird because she goes to church. That none of the other peers she has, none of the other people she goes to school with, none of them go to church but that she goes to church will certainly make her weird in the world. And his prayer in that sense is that this weirdness would be good for her, that it might teach her something. So too it is for Rosie. Is Rosie's figured out, my daughter, that at her school, she's the only one in her class of 30 to 40 kids that goes to church. Um, uh, she, too will have her parents have made a choice for her, which is one of the worst things we can do in the modern world, which isn't true, but it's better that we do it, is that we'll be weird because she goes to church. And she didn't have much of an excuse. She lives right down there. So, um, But one of the things that's what I want to talk today about is how is it we are to be the church in the world today? How is it we are to be God's people? How are we to be a people who once were no people but are now becoming a people, a people who haven't received mercy but are receiving mercy? This is that passage from the end of Peter, actually, that you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. This is what church is like, by the way, if you can hear it, the screaming. (laughs) Uh, it's not so bad after all, um, but you are chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into wonderful life. That, that what we have Peter declaring for us is that what we are, and what we are is a chosen people. We are to be a priesthood. We are to be a holy nation. We are God's special possession so that we can declare how we've been brought from darkness to light, how we've transferred from one realm to another realm. And this is often lost in the modern world for the church, is that we want to be the wisest among the world rather than those who have been um, pulled into a whole nother world. That we would be uh, residing here, what did it say in the reading from last week from the epistle from the first century, is that they reside in lands as if they're their own, but their true country is someplace else. That we are people who live in a different plane, on a different timeline, because of what God has done for us. Now one of the ways in which I think about this is, is just to set a little bit of the stage is that Tim Keller, uh, I, was, I had the privilege of being on a call with Tim Keller this week with 10 other Christian leaders. If you don't know who Tim Keller is, he's a 
a well-known pastor in New York. Uh, I think he's written New York Times bestsellers. But he recently published an, uh, an e-book um, titled How to Reach the West Again. How to Reach the West Again. And I was... Um, I was thinking, what? I've read, it, I've read it through three times with different pastors because we need stuff to talk about other than, I don't we can talk about that another day. <laughs> the, uh, but I've read it through with different groups of pastors, and I kept thinking, why is this document just, I like Tim Keller enough, and it's not exactly my wheelhouse, but I like him, and why does it keep rubbing me wrong? Why can't I get into this document? And then what I realized is that it's, it's embedded in the title, um, How to Reach the West Again. This book ends with a, t- a chapter titled, a remnant. Um, one of my favorite books that I've given you many a copy of is titled Resident Aliens. I think Tim, and he's 82, so he lives in this time where I think there's still the optimism of how might we reach the West again. But I think for many of us, and there's another book I had revisited this week called Beautiful Resistance, it, it would be better to have a document that would say how to survive the West. I don't think most churches, most Christians, most of us have the capacity within ourselves or even within our congregations to say, we need a strategy to reach the West all over again and make it Christendom. There's good stuff in the document, but I think more often what we need is a plan to survive the West. I brought up last week how... um, And when we sort of look at these three sort of worlds, the pre-Christian, the Christianized world, which is not... I should have changed it to Christianize this week because it's not a Christian world. There is no Christian world ever, um, but it's one in which Christianity trades well and that we live in the post-Christian world. And one of the things that I said is in the pre-Christian world, we were just these odd missionaries, uh, the churches, and even as they went to other cultures, they were able to sort of be there in their difference. In the Christian world, it was hard for us to have our differences, although we ramped up in weird ways to do it. Um, but but we sort of had this thing that trades well. And then the problem when we had the Christian world is our missionaries might colonize where they went. So we send a missionary to Africa, and they bring suits and John Wesley hymns, and that's fine, but, but oftentimes it would override whatever was indigenous and native to that culture. So missionaries were careful, or tried to be careful later on about not over-colonizing as they went. But the point I made is that in the post-Christian world, we're always in danger of being colonized. We think we can go out with mission to the protest or to something like this. And what happens is we actually find out that the world is doing more work on us than we're doing on the world. And when I learned this, I I, I joked last week, is I woke up that morning and I was like, I've been colonized. I went out with my friends to, to bring Jesus to the pub and have a good time. And I came back as somebody who knows the difference between an IPA and a lager but nobody came back with me from the pub to church. Um, it's a cheap analogy, but that's what happened in so many different places. Is we sent people out, and they came back more formed by where we sent them out. Jonathan, who's not here today, was asking me about this. He said to me, this is one of the most interesting things I've ever said after church was a compliment. Uh, but then you think about what are, what are all, I said so many uninteresting things then. Um, but uh, and then I didn't come up with it, which hurts even more. But the, the, the thing that I took from that was I was talking to him about it, and I was like, we see this in immigrant cultures as they come here. Normally the first or second generation, as they become Americanized, um, have this period of sort of resentment towards their parents' culture. Our culture is a very, very powerful drug. 
Um, it's one that colonizes people as they immigrate here. Even as they have different languages and celebrations at home, they tend to grow in resentment of that. And Jonathan, who works among the youth in that age, was talking about the truth of that. And they said, around the third generation, though, there is, there is kind of a nostalgic pushback, which is good to keep in mind, but, but it, I think the church doesn't have the nostalgic pushback around the third generation. But the point being is we see it even in the difficulties of people coming to the West. So Rabbi uh, Jonathan Sachs, when he was talking to Christians once about them trying to think through this, he said, Jews have always understood what it means to be a creative minority in the world. What does it mean to be a creative minority in the world? And Christians, this is perhaps maybe more a native tongue. All of this kind of was an illusion. Um, there's a great phrase from a John Howard Yoder that, that the church is a minority in the world that the church is a minority in the world, is not a statistical observation. It's not based on the number of Christians. That the church is a minority in the world um, is not a statistical observation, but a theological one. That if you read through the New Testament, it always has the idea that the Christians will be in a minority posture to the world. And if you make it to the end, the book of Revelation, it also we end up in quite some rough places because of that. And yet, in the West, we've marched on thinking it's always for us to rule and to Christianize everything, when in fact, that was probably trading something away. And one of the ways in which this works is, um, or one of the ways in which we know this might be true today, is... Um, this is, this is a pope speaking. This is Pope Benedict speaking. So they don't switch on this very often. They don't switch at all, really, the Catholic Church. But, but this is Pope Benedict describing his idea of the modern world. This is the last, uh, last pope, still alive. Pope Francis, the current pope. Which reminds me, I meant to say the phrase from Pope Francis. Uh, he calls it the, um, ideologically colon, uh, the West ideologically colonizes everywhere with its ideologies. That, that was Francis's warning. This is Benedict, though. Perhaps the time has come to say farewell to the idea of traditional Christian cultures. Maybe we are facing a new and different kind of epoch in the church history where Christianity will again be characterized more by the mustard seed, where it will, eat, it will, it will exist in small seemingly insignificant groups that nonetheless live in an intense struggle against evil and that bring good into the world, that let God in. The church will, in the foreseeable future, no longer simply be the form of life for the whole society. The church will be more a minority. She will live, oh, this is uh, the same thing. Um, no, it's not. She will live in small, vital circles of really convinced believers who live their faith. But precisely in this way, she will, biblically speaking, become the salt of the earth again. In this upheaval, constancy, keeping what is essential for man from being destroyed, is once more again more important, and the powers of pre preservation that can sustain man in his humanity are even more necessary. Even Pope Francis, as he looks at the state, or Pope Benedict, sorry, the previous one, when he looks at the state of the West, he thinks that it's probably time that the sun is setting on the Christian minority, or majority. But as we embrace living as the minority in the world, that perhaps we can become the mustard seed again. Perhaps we can become salt and light again. Perhaps we can embrace the spot in which we then are restoring things to.
that we can live through this period um, as those who help preserve what humanity needs. So Wendell Berry quote I ever used that the next great division will be between those who decide to live as creatures and those who decide to live as machines. Those who decide to live as creatures and those who decide to live as machines. What is it that our church, the church in the West, as it survives, can learn to help people remember what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to know uh, the truth of Ash Wednesday, that you are dust and to dust you shall return, as we, through modical interventions, try to escape all of that? What does it mean to know the limits of mind and body and soul, and not just in pushing those people to the shelters at the periphery of society, but knowing that in your congregation? What does it mean to have touch and care? What does it mean to pray for one another? What does it mean to be there for one another? What does it mean to have these intense sort of connections to one another? How can the church, our church, reclaim what is human and keeps as human. And so that is, I think, one of the questions that that second Peter passage asks from us, is how might we do that? I said I was going to go shorter, so now I'm cutting stuff left and right. This is fun stuff. Um, the... We'll go to this side just for a second. In the back of the bulletin, there's always this thing, which is the mission of Defiance Church is to be a witness to the reign of triune God, reconciling all things. That's at the bottom, not at the top. Um, And the way that we understand ourselves in this way is that we, the the key phrase I think often in this there is witness. That we are not the reign of God. That we are not bringing about what God has planned. But as people in the world, we get to be witnesses to what God is doing and what God is going to do. And think about a court case. You are a witness to something. You've seen something happen. You didn't do the thing. You didn't make it happen. It's not your thing. And so it is with the church that I think properly understood today that we be to witness God's work, the triune, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, reconciling all things bringing things back around. The church, perhaps in its error, begins to think it's the one who does the reconciling of all things, which can lead to all sorts of bad temptations. It can also think that there's no witness involved and we're just the happy people of God, and so that we aren't engaged in witnessing to the work of what God is doing. But this is, this is that one thing. And often as we talk about witness, I love this quote, that to be a witness does not consist in engaging in propaganda, nor even in stirring people up, but in being a living mystery. It means to live in such a way that one's life would not make sense if God did not exist. The church has certainly had its temptations towards propaganda. It certainly had its temptations towards stirring people up, the emotional high of Christianity. But how is it we embrace being this living mystery? When we look at the world, I think we see a lot that computes. That makes sense. But the church, I think, in its care across um, boundaries, and the church in its, its waste of time and prayer and worship, 
the church, and I mean that from the worldly perspective, um, uh, in its instruction and care, in, in, the, in that we are here Sundays at 10 a.m. every week, you know, those type of things, it just, why? It doesn't compute. It's that, um, you know, that the thoughts and prayers thing has become too much of a slogan, perhaps, after bad things happen in the world, but also prayer is something we believe in, that it is not wasted time, that it is something that we, um, the world says, why don't you do something, and the Christian says, okay, we'll pray, is us speaking our native tongue. The world would like us to do something, and we're the people who know that we might need God to do something, or perhaps at least need God to do something to us first before we go and do something for the world. Um, we know that from history. We've, <laughs> we've, we've, we've messed that one up quite a bit. Um, and so how is it that we are to be these people who have been uh, set apart? Now, Matthew 18, which Lauren read for us, I do want to say real quick on, is that, that I love that passage because um, it's Peter confessing that Christ is the Son um, of the living God, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And it's the first time in any of the Gospels that same scene um, is in th- the three similar Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it's the first time anybody gets that. And so it's this beautiful scene that somebody's able to finally say, we're getting who you are. Now, if you know the story immediately after that, he doesn't get it, but that's, <laughs> uh, that's part of this path that we walk on. Uh, Peter, Peter would be like us. Let's stir people up and engage in propaganda, not be the living mystery. But um, uh that what's contained within that story both is that confession, um, but that Christ, uh, I love that phrase, I will build my church. Um, that Christ, going back to sort of our, our mission statement or whatever you want to call it, that I will build my church upon that confession. Or, or Peter, Augustine thinks he's referring to Christ again, that Christ is the rock upon which he will build his church. Because the, the Aramaic and Greek words get mumbled there. But I said I was going to be shorter, so we're not going to nerd out on that today. Um, if you have questions, I'll ask them after, answer them after. But, uh, the, um, but that, that, that confession, just that confession is what Christ is going to build his church on, which I think in a lot of ways, I think people are engaged to ask, well, that's fine. But what he says next is that the gates of hell will not overcome it. So we exist in the world we're called into caring about many, many institutions and places and things. And institutions, not just like um, colleges, universities, um, workplaces, um, but family life, I think, becomes one of those institutions too. But even um, uh, the, what do I call it, the medical industrial complex, the military industrial complex, our nations, right? And what Christ reveals in that teaching is that this institution— the one I will build upon that confession is the one that the gates of hell can't prevail against. And so it's in our modesty that we begin to understand the other ones that might claim on us are ones in which the gates of hell might prevail against. But because this one is being founded and built by Christ, it is one in which the gates of hell will not prevail. So national identity, all those things, they, they begin to take on, they're not, uh, they're lesser goods is the way that maybe uh, the church fathers, they're not the highest good. The highest good is this one in which we can begin to look in that way. 
Now, one of the things um, I cut much more than uh, I wanted to, that, uh, faith, hope, and love is our next three things when we talk about defiance church. Faith looks backwards to what God has done to rescue us, that we are these people called out. I do love uh, the phrase that we used during our Torah series, that God is whoever raised Jesus from the dead, having previously raised Israel out of Egypt. That's Robert Jensen, and that's one that's always on my mind. Who is God? God who, is G- G- who raised Jesus from the dead, having previously raised Israel out of Egypt. God is this one who's always rescuing and pulling us out. And that rescue is what sets us apart in the world. Faith is where we look back to how God has rescued. Hope is our future orientation, where we see that God is going to redeem all things. So if you think about um, and this works psychologically as an individual, but I think it works as a church, as a people, as these people who were not a people, who are becoming a people, is hope is our, or is our looking towards that things will be restored, redeemed, um, and rescued, that the fullness of that picture is to come. And then love is our ethos in the present. So faith sort of has this past dimension, influences the present. Hope has this future dimension that influences the present. But love is that which drives us in the present. And so we have these five other things, word, uh, confession, tradition, order, and table. And because I was reading too much this week, cleverer pastors than I find a way to put these things in ways in which they say, this in a world of this. And so I did it with our own. I didn't steal theirs, but um, I took the idea Um, And so the first one word is that we are a people of story in a world that is storyless. So much of it, um, uh, we're people who are claimed in this way. We're people who are brought into a story that is not our own story. It's a bigger story than ours. And it's not a story just bent on our own choices, but it's a story that is expansive for us. Alistair McIntyre has this great phrase that before I can ask what should I do, I should ask what story I'm a part of. Story helps give dimensions to our lives. We live in a storyless world in so many different ways. Um, uh, What is that definition of modernity from someone is that uh, um, you're part of nothing that you didn't choose to be a part of. We're part of something that made us a people. so we are word names that we're a people of story in a storyless world. Confession names that we're, uh, in many ways, um, different things. And confessions we've expanded. But I was thinking about it this week. It's a people of forgiveness in an unforgiving world. A people of forgiveness in an unforgiving world. Brian has been reminding me of a phrase from, um, she used to write for the New York Times. She writes for the Atlantic now, Elizabeth Brewing. Um, and she's a Marxist Catholic. Um, uh, so she's a Marxist, you know, she'd think she'd be, but she looked at the state of the modern world once, and her summary was, we live in a world that constantly demands atonement, but provides no forgiveness. You're continually called to atone for everything. But when you come to that end that's supposed to come for atoning for your sins and what you've done wrong, the ills you've made, even apologies, I mean, this gets perhaps worse when you look at microaggressions, you know, that, that you, you admit you're wrong and you apologize, and yet forgiveness and embrace does not meet you in that spot. We're trained people to be able to say we are wrong. The church goes forth into the world as uh, the repentant missionary, um, that we know we have failed along the... Uh, we quoted Spurford earlier. He calls it the Universal League of the Guilty Part Two. 
the Universal League of the Guilty Part 1 is everybody on the earth. The Universal League of the Guilty Part 2 is the people who have been rescued from it, but they're still guilty. Um, we are a people of confession, and that means we are people who know forgiveness in a world that is unforgiving, and then too can offer forgiveness. I don't mean that to stay here. I mean that to say that we can go forth um, seeing the people who are unforgiving and often forgiving in, in that spot. Tradition. We are rooted in a rootless world. I think this one was hard to, to separate from story, but, but I think this rootedness means that we have um, notes and scales that we can use to live the story. That we don't have the story that says, hey, make it up all now yourself, but we have a story that says, here's how people in the past have done this. In communion, the phrase I often forget at the, how Paul introduces his blessing for, for, for communion is, from what I have received, I have passed on to you. That we are a people who have received, and then we are a people who pass on. That we have this storied, um, this tradition going backwards. Uh, Chesterton will expand this to mean that we have a democracy of the dead, that when we get to gather to vote, the dead also get a vote. Um, that's his idea of tradition. And, uh, and the church historian uh, Yaroslav Polikin says traditionalism is the, um, the dead faith of the living, but tradition is the living faith of the dead. Um, we are a people of tradition in a world that has no room for that. Let's invent it all anew. People of order in a world dif- disorder, this one was so easy, um, I didn't even have to change out the words. Um, this line from, from Karl Barth, to clasp hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. Um, our world exists, and this is, this is not our world, this is the world forever, it has existed in so many disordered ways. And so we're invited into the order of the worship of God, the order of this space, and then that brings us out into the world to be people of order. Um, to, to really what I wanted to do was just give all my greatest quotes. The Wendell Berry one about, well, we live in an age of divorce, um, and when you do in an age of divorce, and he means we all live in an age of divorce, is you don't put all the things back together, you put two things back together. Um, it's small, simple work, putting one and one back together. That's how we bring order into a disordered world. And the last one is um, the table. And I thought about that we are a people of hospitality in a world of scarcity. We're people of hospitality in a world of scarcity as we go forth. And this one um, brings us back, I think, to neighborliness. So much of what we think of as the church is to be a people of hospitality means to, that we need to provide for everyone throughout the whole world. But going back to what Pope Benedict said, perhaps those days are over. Our hospitality should go to the people who live on the right and the left, across the street, people we go to school with, people we go to work with. So often we magnify these up, we get these values, and we say, okay, how do we help the people in Africa? Which is a good thing, not saying we shouldn't do that. But so often what's nearest to us, what God provided for us and instructed us to love other than himself, is not somebody distantly around the world, but the one he gives the name neighbor to. So as we practice hospitality or any of these things, don't jump to the furthest places you can. Jump to your family, 
if we needed to start practicing forgiveness in the world, family might be the best place to start. Um, start with your neighbors. Start with your community. That's where the tables are set that we expand into the world. And so we'll close in prayer. This is the prayer that we've closed with throughout that whole series. Next week is Pentecost. Receive the sign of a cross of your token of new life in Christ, in which you shall not be ashamed to confess the faith of Christ crucified, to fight bravely under his banner against the world, the flesh, and the devil, and to continue as his faithful soldier and servant to the end of your days. Amen.